small disciplines, big results. That's going to be the, the, te- the theme that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. As Chad mentioned, if you were not here at the very beginning of the service, uh, today's an exciting day because we have baptisms uh, that we get to celebrate with. We have people uniting with the church uh, we have two interns who have been with us for the last year who are uh, kind of exiting uh, as they finish their second year, uh, and, and I just we will acknowledge them at the very end, but uh, a couple of things to, to bring to point. One would be is we have Mary Lou who uh, has uh, been working primarily uh, with our children's ministry over the past uh, year, and, and I would say to, to you, the congregation, um, we probably would not have been able to make it through Michael's uh, illness over the last five weeks if it had not been for Mary Lou in the sense that it required Jessica to be in the service at 11 a lot more and so Mary Sue stepped in did I say well I say Mary Lou yeah. Mary Lou see look you're doing all kinds of things uh Mary Sue is uh, uh she stepped in and and basically ran our 11 o'clock uh, children's ministry uh for the last five weeks and so we are certainly grateful to her And it's very interesting in the United Methodist Church because our calls are different. And so Taylor uh, has been working really for the last year uh, trying to get to this point uh, in a sense. Uh, He has been, for many of our youth, he has led uh, and and preached to our youth kind of in preparation for uh, this moment. And so this will be the first time uh, that Taylor has delivered a message uh, to, to like people. Uh, and so uh, adult people, I guess, uh, in a sense, in an adult congregation. And so we were talking this morning. He said, you know, well, I did deliver one in class. And I'm like, yeah, uh, this is going to be a little different. Uh, and so uh, I would encourage you when he has the opportunity to come up, I would encourage you. I always say, uh, be gentle. Uh, and uh, the other thing I would tell you, one thing is if you have your phones, I would encourage you. This is kind of an opportunity to, to teach in the sense of I would encourage you to silence your phone. Um, I have been preaching long enough to where it really typically doesn't bother me as much uh, as it probably bothers you when somebody else's phone goes off. Uh, but Taylor being his first time preaching, uh, I-, I would encourage you to silence it so that it doesn't distract him if your phone were to go off uh, during this during the service. Um, we are starting a new series. We're very creative in the church. Uh, we're starting a new series in this new season in the life of the church. The season is after Easter. Uh, that's what we call it. Uh, we led up to Lent, it led to Easter, and so the creative moments in the minds of the church, this is like the first Sunday after Easter, and then it's the next second Sunday after Easter, and it's the third Sunday after Easter. Uh, and what I really am trying to encourage you to think about is how, how successful were you at Lent? How successful was Lent for you? And how did it help you grow in your relationship with God? And you may think, well, that's kind of a weird time to be thinking about it. But when's the best time to think about how you're going to expend for Christmas? It's right after Christmas, right? Because if you wait till Christmas, you've already waited too late. And so for us, the early church, they spent all year long preparing for Easter. Uh, And so I want to encourage you to really think about how, you know, how, how did you use the season of Lent to, to grow you, to grow you closer. Did you just give up coffee? Did you just give up chocolate and then Easter came and boom, you get back to right where you were? Did you use it to, to spend time in, in praying to God? Did, did you even complete Lent 
For some people, we started giving up something and then we kind of stopped halfway and we just kind of chalk it up to poor willpower. Or maybe we didn't even choose to do anything during Lent. And we realized now as we look back at our season of Lent, we realized we really didn't take as much advantage as we could. And so that's what this series is going to be about. And it's based on two books that I'm going to encourage you to read if you would like. One is the Bible. Aren't y'all glad that's one of them? Uh, so one is the Bible. We're going to be looking at biblical ideas, biblical concepts. And then the second is a book that probably most of you have not read. It's a book by Jen Hatmaker. It's called Seven. And it's called An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess. Now, I would encourage you if you'd like, if you, if you like to read, it's a great book to read. She does some really radical things over a seven-month period, her and her family. And I'm not necessarily encouraging you to do that, although you could. Uh, but we're going to take her seven chapters and we're going to look at um, each one of those chapters as a way to kind of push us to stop and think about how do we uh, look at it from a biblical worldview versus a worldly view. Uh, and so she does a really good job of kind of bringing forth certain categories uh, and getting us to think about um, excess and how we look at that as, as, as Christians. Uh, the first category that we're going to be talking about today uh, is food. And so we're going to explore what does it mean to, to think about it from a biblical uh, perspective in, in how do we handle and think about food. And my view would be, as at least in my experience, the more you're aware of excess, the more it helps you to really become the person that God wanted you to be and to be able to live into. And, and I've, I've shared briefly this story with, with, with you before, I'm sure. Um, my first appointment, uh, I was serving a small student church in Rutledge, Georgia, which is not very far from here. And uh, we, uh, there was about 30 or 40 people when I got there. And one of the ladies that was involved in the church, she was a uh, an advocate, a child advocate in the judicial court system. And Lydia was three years old, and she was in the local preschool, and there was uh, one day where this lady came into church, and she began to share with me a little bit, as much as she could, because she was wrestling with, they had found a, a, a family that when they went into the home, they had a three-year-old little girl. And that three-year-old little girl, the only thing they had in their house to eat was a, a tub of lard. And they found this three-year-old little girl eating lard. And I had a three-year-old little girl. And I had, I mean, I was a student appointment, and I was making $19,000 a year. And in that moment, I thought, what would I do if the only thing that I had to feed my child was lard? And I... I, just on my own, I would do anything. Y'all may not like to hear that, but I was like, I would want my child to eat. And I thought, if I would do anything for my child, why would I not do anything for somebody else's child? And so for me, that's kind of where Backpack Buddies kind of started in my own life of just trying to say, you know what, if I can do anything to help end childhood hunger, I'm going to do what I can do in order to be able to, to help those 
who are in need. But the only the way that came about was because I became aware of my excess, that I was literally throwing more food away than what this person who lived not too far from where we lived, what this person had in their entire house. And so I want us to explore today um, food, um, the biblical concept of fasting, and how can it help us as we grow in our relationship with God. All right? And so we're going to ask Taylor if he would come up and share with us just some biblical foundations, if you will, uh, on fasting and what the Bible has to say about that. Y'all welcome, Taylor. Good morning. Oh, y'all can do better than that. Good morning. That's what I want to hear. Okay, so today we're going to be looking in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. It can be found in your Old Testament after the book of Ezekiel. Um, and keep your book Bibles open because we're going to be going back to the text throughout the sermon. Um, to sort of give you an idea of where we're at, uh, this is taking place around 587 BCE. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who is the ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, has conquered Jerusalem and has enslaved the Israelites and deported them throughout the Babylonian Empire. And to show the Israelites that the Babylonian way of life is much better than the Israelite way of life, he decided to get some teenagers, some young people, um, and bring them into his court so that he could train them up to be good Babylonian citizens. And so um, in verses... 3 through 7, it reads, Nebuchadnezzar instructed his highest official, Ashpenaz, to choose royal descendants and members of the ruling class from the Israelites. Good-looking young men without defects, skilled in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, conversant with learning, and capable of serving in the king's palace. Ashpenaz was to teach them the Chaldean language and its literature. The king assigned these young men daily allotments from his own food and from the royal wine. Ashpenaz was to teach them for three years so that at the end of that time they could serve before the king. Among these young men from the Judeans were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the chief official gave them new names. He named Daniel Belteshazzar, Hananiah Shadrach, Mishael Meshach, and Azariah Abednego. Now, giving them new names, especially new Babylonian names, is very important because each of their Babylonian names is named after a particular uh, deity that the Babylonians worshipped. Now, um, Babylon, they worshipped multiple pagan gods, and particularly Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, is translated as, may the god Baal protect us. Now, uh, if you study the Old Testament, anywhere at all, it says throughout that those who worshiped the god Baal uh, were often enemies of the Israelites. And so throughout um, the Old Testament, you'll see those who worshiped Baal were often fighting against the tribe of Israel. And so Daniel's Aramaic name, however, is translated as God is my judge. And for Daniel to take part And accepting his new name, Belteshazzar, would be to accept the god Baal and therefore to abandon the god who has protected him and kept him alive throughout his enslavement. And so in verse 8, it reads, Daniel decided 
that he wouldn't pollute himself with the king's rations or the royal wine. And he appealed to the chief official in hopes he wouldn't have to do so. Now, for Daniel to reject the king's rations is not only a radical act of protest, it's also putting his life on the line. Uh, It's rare for anyone to reject Nebuchadnezzar's food, primarily because to reject anything that Nebuchadnezzar gives you would be offensive to him. Uh, We have to remember where Daniel is at. He's not in Israel where he can safely say these things. He's in another land where he has to follow their laws and their regulations. And so... As a faithful Jew, he doesn't eat the rations, but rather decides to go somewhere and talk to someone about it. And so he approaches Ashpenaz, who is Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man, and it reads in verse 9, Now God had established faithful loyalty between Daniel and the chief official. Now, dig this. God was already working in Ashpenaz's heart. Ashpenaz had grown up in Babylon, he had been worshiping all these pagan deities, and he'd never heard of the God of Israel. And yet, God was working through Ashpenaz in order to soften his heart and in order to listen to Daniel. And so, for this Babylonian court official to listen to this Israelite captive in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar is a really powerful action. It reads in verse 10, but the chief official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my master, the king, who has mandated what you are to eat and drink. What will happen if he sees your face is looking thinner than the younger men in your group? The king will have my head because of you. Now, Ashpenaz clearly could have betrayed Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar and had him executed for his treason. But rather, Ashpenaz is deathly afraid of his king because He's only following orders. He doesn't really have a really good relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. And so for him to listen to Daniel, who has zero power or zero say in the Babylonian court, uh, signifies that Ashpenaz is willing to sort of bend the rules. And Daniel sees that and sees God's plan in action through Ashpenaz. In verses 11 and 13, it reads, So Daniel spoke to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Why not test your servants for ten days? You could give us a diet of vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to the young young men who eat the king's food. Then deal with your servants according to what you see. Now the Hebrew term for vegetables is derived from the verb zarah, which translates into sow or to plant. And uh, when you read back in the original Hebrew text, uh, what Daniel is literally asking for is, give me anything that is sown in the ground. So he's casting a wide net uh, for this proposed diet that he's planning to go on. uh, Because the meat that the king was offering them as rations had already been sacrificed to pagan gods. And so for him to partake in it would be just as offensive as taking up the name Baal protect us. And so, by refusing the meat, by refusing to eat Nebuchadnezzar's rations, Daniel is saying, I'm not going to accept your fascist regime. I'm going to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, even if it results in me losing my own life. 
Because for him to partake in the food would mean he was taking a step away from the God that had been working to free the people of Israel captive in the land of Babylon. And so in verses 14 and 15, the guard decided to go along with their plan and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. Now, this made Nebuchadnezzar very, very angry because no one said no to Nebuchadnezzar. He often used coercion and violence in order to get what he wanted. This man was the definition of a tyrant. And so what Daniel is doing is he's putting not only his own life on the line, but his friends' lives on the line for their faith because his faith is not going to be compromised in the Babylonian court. So Nebuchadnezzar decides to go along with this plan. He decides to placate them because he believes that by giving them what he want, they want, they will accept his rules, they will become good Babylonian citizens, they'll start speaking their language, and they will give up worshiping this God of Israel that they keep speaking about. But for Daniel, such actions are not acceptable in the eyes of God. Although Nebuchadnezzar has taken the place of God in the court, Nebuchadnezzar will never unthrone God in Daniel's heart. Because God is still Daniel's judge. And Daniel's decisions prove that our daily choices often define who we are. We often see ourselves making choices that distance ourselves from God or bring us closer. And when we say no to excess and decide that we're not going to allow excess to define our relationship with God, we decide that we're going to cut out some barriers for that are cutting ourselves off from God. And so when I started writing this sermon a few years ago, Andy told me a story from one of his first churches where a parishioner gave up all food for Lent, this is no joke, and decided to just have nothing but smoothies and water. And that blew my mind because I have some health issues that forbid me from fasting in that sort of manner. But I did remember a time where I had to give up some excess, uh, and it really tested the faith of my friends and myself. And so um, during spring break, uh, March 2016, I was a junior in college, and I went with the Wesley Foundation to a uh, place called the Society for St. Andrews in Orlando, Florida. Now, they're an organization that is uh, dedicated to teaching young people from high school all the way through college about sustainable farming practices and healthy eating choices. And uh, Bill, our host, the first night we got there, he had us make a covenant where we promised we would not drink any soda or have any candy that whole week. And so we agreed to that. And so a typical day would be we'd get up at 6 a.m., get dressed, have breakfast. At 7 a.m., we would go into the living room and have worship. At 7.30, we would get in the van and drive to the farm. At about 8 a.m., I remember just getting out of the van that Wednesday and just seeing miles and miles of unharvest cabbage. Now, many of us aren't, don't eat cab, might not eat cabbage a whole lot, um, and that's fine. I don't eat cabbage a whole lot either. I uh, don't find myself eating cabbage on a daily basis. But uh, our goal was to glean as much cabbage 
that we could and process it at a warehouse later that day. Now, gleaning is an ancient practice uh, that goes back to biblical Judaism where during the harvest you would leave a certain percentage of your crop on the edge of the field so that if your neighbor who was hungry wanted something to eat, they could just pluck some of the crop and have some to eat. And so they wouldn't go hungry. And that's sort of this uh, idea of generosity that you can find in Christianity. And so we, we gleaned several hundred pounds of cabbage with all these other volunteer groups, and then we shipped it off to a warehouse that was about three times the size of this sanctuary. And uh, we all, Andy just mentioned uh, backpack buddies, and so for those of you who might not be familiar with it, we, we fill up a bag of food for a family of four. Uh, we distribute it through the local elementary schools, and so that they don't go hungry. But instead of feeding hundreds of families, we were feeding thousands upon thousands of families in the metro Orlando area. And it was startling to me how many of these families were struggling to get by in what is considered the happiest place on earth. That just outside these magical walls of Disney World, hundreds of families are starving. So many souls are trying to scrape by. And that really taught me a lot about how we distribute food in this country and how we should be taking care of our neighbor. And as we were heading back to our house that afternoon, the house we were staying at, we, uh, our van had to stop and get gas. And we got out to stretch our legs. And before I knew it, uh, I was walking out of the gas station with my friends with a Coke bottle in one hand and a Three Musketeers in the other because, um, you know, we were rebels, and uh, my plan, okay, here was my plan. Our plan was very simple. We were going to drink the Coke on the way back and stuff the trash in our book bags and then throw it away when Bill wasn't looking, right? Yeah, that didn't work, because um, on the, as we were walking out, I saw this car sitting by one of the pumps, and behind it was Bill, and uh, I just, I'll never forget his face and be like, yeah, I see you. I see you. And I was like trying to keep my head down. And I was like, all right, I don't know you. Maybe hopefully he was thinking that we were just some tourists who had stopped at the same gas station he had that looked exactly like the college students he was hosting. And uh, so we just kind of played dumb and didn't say anything as we got back. Hopefully he wouldn't say anything. We get back on the porch that night before dinner and he says, all right, guys, you remember that covenant we made a few days ago? I was like, yeah. He was like, yeah, well, you broke it. We're sorry. He was like, well, it's okay. I'm not really that mad. I'm actually surprised. You guys made it to day three. Most groups don't even make it past day two. We were there for five days, and we didn't even make it past day three without cracking. And so when I went to this passage and started working on this sermon, I was thinking where Daniel was. Because Daniel and his friends aren't the only Israelites in Nebuchadnezzar's court. You see, there are all these other young Israelite teenagers who were eating the king's meat and accepting their rations like good Babylonian citizens in training. But what Daniel was seeing was that they were abandoning the God of Israel. They were abandoning all the tenets that they had grown up with, all of the religious teachings they had been brought up with, and they were accepting this culture that was an affront to everything that Daniel believed in. 
And so instead of taking part in the meat that was being offered to him, he decides to dine on vegetables instead because he realized something that it took me about 21 years on earth to realize, that a world of excess is not a world God wants us to live in. And fasting is one of the ways we grow closer to God. It shows us this in verses 16 and 17. So the guard kept taking away their rations and the wine they were supposed to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And God gave knowledge, mastery of all literature, and wisdom to these four men. Daniel himself gained understanding of every type of vision and dream. God rewarded Daniel for his self-discipline and his strong faith. Because Daniel was able to resist Nebuchadnezzar's pressure and because he was willing to refuse to accept Babylonian culture in the midst of great oppression, Daniel was able to show his friends and future followers of God that we can give up the excess. We don't have to live in excess. In fact, excess is actually sometimes dangerous because it cuts ourselves off from God. When we deny ourselves the access, which society often tempts us with, when we, as Dave Ramsey puts it, live like no one else so we can later live like no one else, we develop a renewed focus on how God wants us to live our lives. And when we free ourselves from earthly excess, we grow closer to God in ways we cannot possibly imagine. Amen. As Taylor and I were, were working and he was sharing the messages over the last couple of weeks, and there was one point where he, he was, in his, in his delivery, he said, well, something to the effect of, well, I'm not going to pressure you uh, to think about fasting. And I stopped him and I said, don't say that, uh, because I am uh, going to pressure you uh, to fast. Uh, the, the reality is scripture is, is very clear that fasting is a spiritual discipline that we as followers of Christ uh, should participate in. Uh, one of the things I'm going to give you if you choose to accept the, the challenge is a card. It just simply has a scripture on here uh, from Matthew 6, uh, and then it has some tips to be able to help you uh, with your fast. Uh, but the scripture that it talks about in Matthew 6, it says this, And when you fast, don't put on a sad face like the hypocrites. They distort their faces so people will know they are fasting. I assure you that they have their reward. When you fast, brush your hair and wash your face. Then you won't look like you're fasting to people, but only to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And I love this passage because when, it, it, when, when Jesus is speaking, notice that he doesn't say, if you fast. When. It is as if Jesus assumes that you as followers of Christ will participate in this discipline because fasting has been something for the Israelite people that has been a huge part of their, of their journey with, with, with God. And so I'm going to invite you. Now, in the book, what she does is she encourages for one month, her and her family, they pick seven items and all they eat for 31 days are those seven items. Now, you can do that if you want to. Uh, but, but what I do encourage you is to stop and think about, if you don't choose to do that, what could you fast? I mean, now, 
Taylor mentioned he's, he physically has physical uh, limitations to be able to, to fast in a sense of a 40-day fast kind of thing or even a seven-day fast. But maybe you stop and you recognize, you know what, I, can, I could skip lunch every day for the next seven days uh, and spend that 30 minutes praying. Maybe you choose to fast a particular item uh, to where you stop and go, I'm going to, to, but you use the energy. See, this is where we sometimes miss in Lent is we just give up things and we don't really ever stop and connect it to our relationship with God. But you spend your time stopping and thinking about God and uh, God's provisions for you, but then also how God can use you uh, as his people to be able to, to help others. Um, so I'm encouraging you this week to fast of some sort, uh, whether it's fasting for a day, whether it's fasting for a meal, but spending that time uh, with God and allowing God to, to work on you. That's what Daniel's story is, that Daniel is given wisdom, he's given understanding as he takes this fast and stays loyal to God. The reason I think it's important, do, do, you, do you have any idea what the United States of America spends every year on ice cream? Somebody give me a number. 20 billion. 20 billion. You are like, you must be being baptized today because it is $20 billion <laughs> that they spend on ice cream. Every, exactly, $20 billion. All right, so Glenn, now we're going to ask you a different one. What about coffee? How much do we spend on coffee? Uh, I'm, I'm not doing Oh, okay. <laughs> Anybody else? What do you think we spend on coffee? 30, 30 million, 13.6 billion dollars the United States of America spends on coffee. How much? 13.6 billion. We spend more ice cream than coffee, but we're gaining. What about soft drinks? Anybody, what do you think we spend on soft drinks? How much? 40? 28 billion? 28 billion? 65 billion dollars a year on soft drinks. Now, what do you think, now this is beyond my expertise, but this is what experts say, to have safe drinking water for everybody in the world, what do you think it would take? Anybody got a number? Five, three, pretty good. Estimates? Experts say it would take $10 billion a year to have safe drinking water across the world. Now, again, this is beyond my expertise, but to end childhood hunger, what do you think? $30 billion a year. So to end childhood hunger and to have safe drinking water across the world, if we gave up soft drinks... We could still have ice cream and coffee. <laughs> you know? Soft, so just, it's just to push you to stop and think. And obviously, we can't do that on ourselves alone, but it's the reality of that's what it takes us as followers of Christ. The world says that we are to get more, to accumulate more, to have more. Scripture is very clear that we are to empty ourselves. We are to do less, have less in us, so that we are able to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We're able to be filled with God. And so I'm just encouraging you this week to just examine food. Think about, be aware of the excess in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we, we come in this moment. We give you praise for Taylor, his willingness to, to follow your call. Lord, we thank you for the story of Daniel that teaches us the importance of staying true and loyal to you in faith. But it also pushes us, God, to think about how we might abstain from excess in our own life in order to grow closer to you. And Lord, I pray for us as a congregation. I know just the concept of fasting makes people nervous. But I pray, O Holy Spirit, that you just pour over us and to, to help us to stop and pause about the excess of food in our life and how we may be more faithful to you by abstaining from certain foods, by lessening ourselves so that we can grow in our dependence of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.